So this is part two in the book of Hebrews. And I'm uh, probably about a year ago, I asked some very challenging questions. And I thought it was pretty much important to ask them again, especially in light of chapter two. We're going to look at the first four verses of chapter two in Hebrews. So let me ask you these questions, and then we're going to read the text to draw you into the text. We good? Yeah. So you can leave this slide up for a minute, Cindy. And I want to ask these questions to you. Especially since we are in the last days, I don't think it takes a rocket science to figure that out. We're living in the very last days. Read Matthew 24, and it's like listening to the news as it happens. Um, are we authentic believers? And I'm using the word authentic very importantly. Are we authentic believers in Christ? Or is the attachment to Christ more like the superficial attachment? And do we have this empty testimony, meaning, well, we, we know about Jesus, we've heard about him, we know about him, but we really don't know him intimately at all. So, you know, for all of us that are in churches on a regular base, here's another question. Do we, do we just tend to give the appearance of being this genuine disciple of Christ, or have we learned how to just blend in real well? And if you remember about a year ago, I was when I asked this question before, I was thinking about Judas Iscariot. And it was sobering, really sobering thought that made me feel very uneasy as I was thinking about this. You know, here, here's this guy, this man. He, he lived with Jesus, ate with Jesus consistently for almost three, maybe three and a half years, he sat under the very teaching and ministry of Christ. He, he was somebody that firsthand saw this amazing man, this, this God-man, this integrity of Christ, and he was a literal eyewitness to many of the miracles that Jesus performed. His fellow disciples that were with him, <clears throat> they actually respected Judas so much that he was appointed the treasurer of the finances. <clears throat> but church, through all of that, what did we find out? What did the Bible tell us? He turned out just to be a counterfeit disciple. He, he became this master craftsman of acting religious, being a religious around the religious people. Yet as we learn from the scripture, Jesus never committed his life to Christ. He never died to self. And that's a scary, sobering reality. And it begs the question we should be thinking about. Is any of that true about you and I? We have to ask ourselves these sobering questions because someday you're going to die and you're going to stand before the Lord and there's not going to be a second chance. From what we're learning, has, does that describe any of us? Could you and I be just as self-deceived about where we stand with Christ? 
So as we look at Hebrews 2, I want us to be honest with ourselves and the Lord this morning. So let's look at chapter 2. Let's look at the first four verses and then dig into the text. And I want you to be thinking about those questions because your very soul and eternity depends on that, church. So Hebrews chapter 2, look at those first four verses with me. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention. Not just attention, but much closer attention to what we've heard. Lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, in every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or penalty, <clears throat> how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we reject that gospel, church, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. In verse 4, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, but according to His own will. Wish I had time to camp out on that, but I don't. Slide three. So think about it. If you had it all, church, if you had it all, what would that look like to you in your own eyes? What's this definition of the good life? Have the good life now. <clears throat> what's, the, what's that big dream that you've been chasing after all these years? You know, people with the lottery watching the little bouncing balls on the screen and all that. What's the big dream that you, if I had all this money, oh, yes, things would be perfect. And here's the other important question for those that just occasionally come to church and think that's okay. Who's been discipling you? The church or the world? Who's, who's teaching have you been sitting under? So church, how is it that some people will come to church week after week, they'll come to church month after month, year after year, They'll hear that message of the cross. They'll hear the word of God taught from the scriptures. And yet, they've just chosen to be like Jesus. They just choose to surrender their lives to Christ. Think about why is that? I want to share slide four and five. I think, uh, uh, four and five. Uh, this is John Piper. I like what he said. Piper says this. I feel a special burden for the millions of nominal Christians who are not born again, who believe God loves them, and yet they're on their way to hell. And the difference between them and a born-again believer is this. What's at the bottom, the decisive foundation of their happiness? What's your happiness rooted in? As you penetrate down deeper and deeper to the core or at the bottom of what makes you happy. Slide five. Millions of nominal Christians have never experienced a fundamental, listen, a fundamental 
alteration of that foundation of happiness. Is it happiness in the world or in a relationship with Christ? Instead, they have absorbed the notion that becoming a Christian means turning to Jesus to get what you always wanted before you were born again. In other words, to become a Christian in this way is seeing things is to have all the same desires you had as an unregenerate person, one that's not born again. <clears throat> Only now you're getting them from a new source. You're just shopping at a new store. There, there's no change in you. There's no change in the bottom of your heart. And there's no change in your cravings. I'm still craving after the heroin and the booze and this and that and the other things and the money. Hear me this morning, slide six. The new birth changes the bottom, the root, the foundation of what makes us happy. Self, at the bottom, is now replaced by Jesus, who is God himself. So what makes born-again people glad is not at the bottom that they have God's gifts, but church that they have God himself. The person of the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. So look at slide 7. So Paul in Hebrews 2.1. For this reason, <clears throat> we must pay much closer attention. Take it serious to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. He says, for this reason. Now, we need to understand first that the reason is what we learned back when I taught in chapter 1 a few weeks ago. What did we learn in our last time together when I was in chapter 1? We learned these points right from the text. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Not some, all. Number two, we learned that Christ is the cause of creation. He is the apogosma. He is the radiance of his Father's glory. He sustains the universe by the power of his word. And he's so much better than the angels. Where's it, where it say that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at slide 8, Hebrews 1, 4. Having become as what? Oh, there it is, in the scriptures. Much better than the angels. And has inherited a more excellent name than they. Much better. Not much better, but much better. Much meaning vast and great in the Hebrew. Better meaning better in value, dignity, more noble or more excellent. I like what Legan Duncan says, slide 9. <clears throat> Here's his understanding of it. That Christ was exalted by the Father as the result of his perfect completion of the work of redemption on our behalf, church. And that in and of itself is the consequence of the eternal covenant which God the Father and God the Son made before the foundation of the world for the sake of our salvation. Millions of years before this was even invented, they already had a plan as if it was already executed. <clears throat> it is an amazing thing that is being stressed here in the text. The Lord Jesus Christ earned the right to receive his inheritance by his obedience. Church, Christ, no prophet is sitting there. Christ is the one that sits at the right hand of the Father. So we know who Christ is from the scriptures. 
We know what he's done for us from the scriptures. Jesus is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. And don't let any false prophet tell you there's a man sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, the God-man. So it would seem to me, and I hope to you, that the author of Hebrews is saying, listen up, listen up, pay careful attention. In this first verse, there are two important Greek words that are actually nautical terms for those boat people. So to help us get a clearer picture of this warning, I want to tease these words apart to help us better understand what the author wants us to hear. And no, I'm not going to put the Greek up on the screen. I don't want to get my wife mad. Slide 10. So he says, we must pay much closer attention, right? So that, that word pay, much closer attention. So the word pay has, is the word prosecco. It means the way it's being used here is, listen, be very cautious with what you're hearing. Pay careful attention to it. Take it seriously, prosecco. Hold, hold it in your mind, the things that you've learned from the scriptures in, in chapter 1 about Jesus. And, and, and hold to that course. Secure it as an anchor in your soul. Closer attention, periosoteres, has the idea of this uh, over and above. Much closer. Over and above, just like you're listening to something in the background. So what does the author of Hebrews want you and I to pay attention to? He tells us in the text what we just learned in chapter 1. That gospel that's been given to us. Why? He, he answers the question. So church, that we do not drift away from it. Listen, there's a million voices out there competing for your allegiance and attention that want to move you farther and farther and farther away from the Lord where you're drifting farther away. That, that word drifting away it was also a nautical term. It has the idea of we're drifting off course. See, the idea here, and they would have understand this, the idea here is that of a ship that's drifted off course or, or it, you know, it drifted past the harbor because the helmsman of that ship forgot to steer the boat into the harbor. Why? He wasn't paying attention. Are you paying attention to the Word of God this morning? Here's something else. Did you ever notice that drifting away can usually go unnoticed? It's just below the surface. So the real question is this. What have you been anchoring your life to? Hear me this morning. This is important. What are you anchoring your life to? You know someday you're going to draw your last breath. It's going to happen. What are you anchoring yourself to, church? Hear me. The tides and currents of this fallen world are constantly trying to pull you and I away so that we're destroyed. Slide 12. Here's some questions to ask again. What sirens of this world are preoccupating your heart and mind so much that you're really not giving much thought to Christ at all? Think about it. What, what, what's preoccupying your heart and mind so much that you're not even giving much thought to Christ at all. You know, we get so preoccupied with our needs and wants and desires, is he even in the picture? What are we paying so much attention to that's not him? What's hijacked your heart? Hear me this morning. This is important. If you do not pay careful attention, if you're not cautious with your spiritual life, it's going to disintegrate all by itself. Before you even know it, think about it. And maybe this is happening to you right now and you need to repent. 
your spiritual life becomes dull. You start to become more and more less interested in spiritual things. The next thing you know, you find yourself being carried away by the false teachings and the trinkets of the world. So ask yourself, what do you find yourself falling back onto when this happens? For the alcoholic, one more drink or your family, the drug addict, the crack and heroin or your job. Think about it. Slide 13. Here's Paul writing to this church of Galatia. And Paul's given a warning here too. He says, walk by the Spirit. If I'm walking by the Spirit, and that's a capital S, that's the Holy Spirit, you will not carry out. You will not fulfill or indulge the desires, those longings and lusts of the flesh. If my life is anchored on Christ and I am walking by the Spirit, those things do not have power over me because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen? Amen. That word walk is the Greek word parapeteo. It's also in the Greek, in the text here, it's in the present tense. Well, what does that mean? You guys remember that from English grammar? It, it speak, here in the Greek, it speaks of this ongoing, continuous action. So Paul is talking about a habitual way of life, the way you're living out every day. So if I'm walking daily in the spirit every day, I'm not going to carry out or indulge the desires, the longings of the flesh. See, the idea here is that you and I are not to just be sitting on the sidelines of our life, drifting from here to here with nothing to anchor our lives on. And we need also remember as Christians, our power comes completely, 100% from God the Holy Spirit. Without Him, I can't do anything. I'm worthless. Hear me this morning. Living your life by being continually led by the Holy Spirit I'm going to be straight up with you, is a life of conflict and battle with your old sin nature. The old you is still there and is going to try to pull you back. Oh, man, a couple hits of that booze and you're going to be good, man. Sleep with that girl you're not married to. You're, it's okay. You pull back into that old life and we're going to have to answer for those consequences. See, our old sinful nature that we battle with wants us to drift away from God. This is why you and I must never allow ourselves to drift away from the gospel message. Listen, you should be preaching the gospel to yourselves every day throughout the day, day after day. I promise you that. Every day throughout the day, you need to be preaching the EU Gelion, the good news of the gospel to yourselves every day. What does Paul also say? Look at verses 14 and 15. So now he unpacks the sarks, the flesh, the desires that are against the spirit. He gives us a laundry list of, here's some technicolor main desires that are warring against God the spirit. So he says, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. The spirit against the flesh. They're in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you please. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're clear. Which are what? Immorality, impurity, sensuality, slide 15, idolatry, sorcery or pharmakia, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. I'm sure, nobody struggles with that. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness. 
You could also replace that word with addictions, carousing, things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have already forewarned you, that those who practice such things that are on this list, I'm telling you what the scripture says. That's my job. What's it say? If I'm practicing those things as a way of life, I will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's what it says. Your argument's not with me. Your argument's with the very one that knit you in your mother's womb. That word flesh is the word sarks. And, and here as it is used, that word flesh, it's describing for you and I that old man that you were before you came to a saving faith in Christ. It's speaking here of that old moral and spiritual weakness that wants to cling to and hang on to our hearts. It wants to grip us like a death grip. It speaks of the opposition and conflict that happens in the heart of every born-again believer. And in verse 19 through 21, he's outlining the deeds of the fallen flesh. He's talking about the things that are produced by our fallen, sinful nature. So think about it. What does my fallen nature produce? Immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Now that word immorality is the word porneia, where we get our English word pornography from. Another very, very deadly addiction. Very deadly. In fact, um, Amon Clinics did brain spec imaging of somebody that was using uh, crack cocaine and somebody watching porn, and the exact same areas in the brain lit up. The brain could not tell the difference between that high and the high from pornography. It's a deadly addiction, and it destroys homes and families. Mark my words, it does. And he's using that word pornea here. Okay? It's talking about illicit sexual activity, fornication. Do you know when a man sleeps with a woman that he's not married to, according to the scripture here, that word fornication? The man makes her a prostitute, and the scripture says he becomes the fornicator. Do you realize that? That's what the scripture says. God said sex is safe only in marriage. So when a man sleeps with a woman or a woman sleeps with a man, they're robbing them, the future spouse of something that was only meant for them. Amen? I'm telling you what the text says. Your argument's with him. Well, we're going to get married anyway. That's not what it says. It says, for this cause a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. It doesn't say, hey, try her out, shack up with her, see if it works out. And if it works out, good. If not, treat her like a used car and we'll go to the next one. It says a man leaves his father and mother and they're joined together as a one flesh union. That's what the Bible says. That's either the roadmap for our life or the world is. If the world is... We're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it says. I'm just reading what it says. So that's what that word speaks of. <clears throat> Illicit sexual activity, adultery, homosexuality, prostitution. Then he moves on to the word impurity. <coughs> Akarthia. It's actually a medical term. The word impurity here has the idea of the way, especially as it was used back in those Greek times, of this infected wound, this oozing wound, something that is a very unclean wound. It speaks of, here, as Paul's using it, it speaks of moral uncleanliness that prevents a person from approaching God. Then he goes to the word sensuality. Asliga. It, it, this word has the idea of a person who lacks moral restraint. A person who lives in a world of sexual indulgence. They actually have no shame as they practice this type of behavior because they have no concern for how their behavior affects another person. Hence, the world of pornography. 
The sexual sin literally oozes out and affects the hearts and then it affects the lives of others. How many kids are born out of wedlock today? Think about it. Broken homes. Mom's not in the picture or dad's not in the picture. This is what the Bible says we don't practice. If you're truly born again, you're not going to practice this behavior. That was the old way. Amen? I know this is hard to fit in the ear, but it's got to be taught, and that's my job. Then he says idolatry and sorcery. Slide 16. Here's what MacArthur says in his commentary. The deeds of the flesh not only defile men themselves, but also their relationship to God. All human religion is based on self-effort, on man's sinful insistence that he can make himself acceptable to his humanly conceived God by his own efforts. Consequently, human religion is the implacable enemy of the divine grace and therefore of the gospel. So what is idolatry? You know, back then they had stone and wooden statues and they would say, that's my God. Think about it. Idolatry is worshiping anything that's man-made, anything in creation. That's idolatry. People can, an idol can be a person that you just adore. It could be a job, can become your idol. Where you're giving your time, worship is giving your time, talents, and treasure to something wholeheartedly. It could be a job. It could be a home, a car, you know, that just, it just, it's, it's something that you're worshiping that's man-made. Sorcery is the word pharmakia, where we get our English word today, pharmacy. Now, back in those days, the idea of pharmakia was actually a medical term used of medicines. And, of course, we're still seeing that used for that purpose today. We go to the pharmacy, right? But later on, the ophthalmology of the word came to grow. And later on, it came to speak more of a mind of these mind-altering drugs, such as we see destroying our country today. We see fentanyl permeating now, and it's now in the Pottstown area. Somebody thinks they are going to be safe getting their, 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 their heroin, their drugs, their pot, whatever, from a dealer instead of a licensed pharmacist, and just one little grain of fentanyl, and you're done. You know, the drug dealer don't care that sold you that. He don't care that you're dead. He just goes on to say he's the next person. You're nothing but a, some greenbacks to him. Why do we want to trade our life for that kind of nonsense and foolishness and garbage? So that's what it is, mind-altering. A, a lot of ancient religious ceremonies, church, and practices back then involved occultic uses of mind-altering drugs to induce the so-called communication with the spirits. Unfortunately, the spirits that they were communicating with, with that, was demons. Which is why pharmakia became a word used more for witchcraft and magic, hence the word sorcery. So you can see why Paul put them together. And then the final grouping of words speaks more of man's relationship with fellow man. Enmities. <clears throat> Hateful attitudes towards people. Everything is everybody else's fault, so I hate them all. I don't want to take responsibility for my behavior. My behavior is because of what you did. Enmity, strife, bitter conflicts. I know nobody has that struggle in their life, right? Jealousy, which we know is a hateful form of anger and resentment because of something somebody else has that we think we're entitled to. Outburst of anger. This speaks of an action which flows from the preceding three words that we've covered. 
as a result of jealousy and strife and enemies, I'm going to lash out and I'm going to hurl out profanity out of my mouth like a junkyard dog and freak out on somebody. Forget that Paul says, let no corrupt communication come out of our mouth, but only what is necessary for edification that it might impart grace to the hearers, but outbursts of anger. And then the final groupings of words, <clears throat> disputes, dissensions, factions, and envyings, animosity between people or groups of people. Even if an argument happened a while back and the conflict happened a long time ago, somebody's heart can still be unsettled because they never learn to forgive. You know, you remember what you did four years, three days, 22 hours and five minutes ago to me? And what is it? That seed of bitterness just sits in there and sits in there and festers. And yet Jesus forgives us of all of the insane, horrible things that we do. He doesn't carry the grudge. He doesn't do that to us. Yet we do it to other people. And you know what's sad about that? Is the person that has all of that anger, they're the one in bondage. Because they won't let go. And so here's the thing about that. It seeps into all the different relationships. It, it's like putting on cloudy contact lenses that you see everything through those types of eyes. And then the last ones, drunkenness, carousing. What is carousing? Well, you see carousing going on in the streets, especially with the younger kids today. Carousing, letting loose, rioting. You know, we see them breaking into stores and shooting each other and doing all kinds of nonsense. Paul put this in here probably because of all the, the orgies and all of that pagan garbage that was happening in their worship ceremonies. So the idea is that of being drunk and rowdy, having very crude behavior. Paul gives us this information. Look at slide 7. I forewarned you about this, believers in Galatia. You, you Galatian believers, you foolish Galatians. I, re, I, I, I warned you about this. And I, I forewarned you about this. That if you're going to practice these things as a way of life, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's what Paul says in the scriptures. Practice. It's also a present active participle in the Greek. Actually speaks the same thing, an ongoing action. If this is going to be the way of life that you choose to practice, hitting the dealers, sucking in the crack, the pot, the heroin, the booze, the drugs, all this stuff, and you're going to practice that as a way of life, and you're going to sleep with people you're not married to as a way of life, you're going to do all that, you, you know, you're going to stand before God and depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. When we look at neglecting, neglecting is a refusal. Paul is saying neglecting is a refusal to surrender your life to Christ. You've heard it. You've tasted and seen. And you're rejected. And later on chapter 6 he says, there remains no sacrifice for sin. You've rejected it. So what do we got here? It's revealing to us that a person is unregenerate. They have no interest into God's kingdom. Church, hear me this morning. I know it's a lot. But it's got to be taught. A person's character is revealed in their behavior, in their ongoing way of life and habitual behavior. We're not speaking of an occasional behavior that a Christian will fall into. And we all do that. We all sin in thoughts, words, deeds, actions, and motives every day. Here he's talking about an ongoing thing that you're practicing as a way of life. Let's hit back at chapter 2 now, slide 18 to 19. What does Paul say? 
For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, you can't change them. They're unalterable. Every transgression and disobedience received a penalty. Slide 19. Here it is in the New Living Translation. <clears throat> For the message God delivered through the angels has always stood firm. Every violation of the law, every act of disobedience was punished. <clears throat> the question we need to ask ourselves this morning then, okay, Pastor Jack, why should we take what was shared in verse 1 so seriously? Slide 20. If the word spoken through the angels was standing firm. If. That's a conditional clause. Something that's been fulfilled. The angel spoke. What was the condition that was completed? The word spoken through the angels was unalterable. It, sta it stands firm. It's absolute. The, word Greek, the Greek word is babayas. It's sure. What was spoken is reliable. It has a legal flavor to it. The idea seems to convey something in force, something that's valid, something that's legally binding. <clears throat> it was legally binding. Why? Because it was spoken by God himself. And every, slide 20, every transgression, every violation, every disobedience received a just punishment. So what's the writer of Hebrews telling us? Well, many of the theologians think this. This standing firm, this unalterable, many of them seem to think that Paul is alluding to what happened back at Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were being given to Moses. Well, then we ask, where, where do we find this inscription? Now, you all have, you all firm believers have Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 memorized. You have the Ten Commandments memorized. You could spit them all out, right? You're all solid theologians, right? So, the Ten Commandments, we all know, back in Exodus 18, 19, 20, were being given to Moses then we have to say, okay, well, then where do we find that in Scripture? Man, I'm glad you guys asked that. I'm glad you're right on top of it. Slide 21 and 22. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them at what? Mount what? Mount Sinai in His holiness. So Scripture seems to be telling us that when God was delivering the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, the Lord had thousands upon thousands of angels with him. Well, where else can we back that up in Scripture? I'm glad you asked again. You guys are great. Deuteronomy 33.2. Yahweh. Yahweh came from Sinai. It dawned on them from Seir, different parts of the mountain, the north part, the south part. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the midst of what? What's it say? Oh, there it is. 10,000 holy ones. And at his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. This verse also seems to reveal to us that angels were very involved with the Lord, Yahweh, in bringing the law. The Ten Commandments are there. Now they are our schoolmaster, our tutor. Because what we couldn't fulfill, Christ fulfilled. So scriptures tell us that the angels were with the Lord at Sinai when the law was given. They were instrumental in bringing the law. So God, God's word, church, listen, as we just read in Hebrews 2, it's absolute, it's firm, and it's sure. And in addition to himself, he uses powerful angels to make sure of this. So MacArthur says, if you broke the law, the law broke you. 
If a person is going to worship idols, if they're going to chase after other false gods, if they're going to commit adultery, or they're going to use God's name as a cuss word, back in those days, that person was stoned to death. Punishment was firm and carried out. He says that every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment. Just so we're clear with the text, I want you to understand, well, okay, well, what does that word transgression mean? What did the writer of Hebrews mean when he used the word transgression? Okay, the word is parabasis. It means transgression. It means that you willfully, now listen, so we understand the text. It means that you willfully and deliberately cross the line and you willfully and deliberately violate and break the law. If it's a sin of commission means that you're intentionally doing something that you already know is wrong and is sinful. The second word he uses is disobedience. The Greek word is parakoe. It means a failing to adhere or to listen to instruction, to neglect instruction. It's active disobedience due to careless hearing. Somebody wants to, you know, ever try to really share some wisdom and counsel with somebody to give them the truth? And they're like, I don't want to hear it. You know what you're telling them is important for them to hear, but they don't have ears to hear, do they? You know, you, you, know, you need to tell them, but they don't want to listen. See, both words are being used here in the text to reveal to you, you and I just how serious sin is. He says it, they received a just punishment. Endicost, just. And a fixed position, decay, judgment or sentence. It implies a fixed sentence of punishment. So how do we wrap this up and put this all together? Oh, well, there'll be a test at the end. No, I'm kidding. When we put this together, we can draw out of the text that God, church, has been and always will be and always was just or right when he punishes those who reject him and live their lives without him in defiant, willful disobedience. Back then, he removed those who willfully chose to simply reject and break his law. Why? To protect those who belonged to him and wanted to live a holy life. His judgment on the nation of Israel was severe because they knew better. They had the law. They had the prophets. Look at slide 26. What does MacArthur say here? Punishment is always related to light. The more light we have, the more severe our punishment. Jesus was clear about this. MacArthur goes on to say, the principle is this. The more you know, the greater the punishment for not abiding in what you know. So how do we bring this full circle? Church, any person who knows and believes the gospel of God concerning his son Jesus Christ, but briefly, or but I should say drifts away from it, they're going to experience a more severe punishment. Now look at the, and I'm going to stop at verse 3 here for time. Look at slide 27. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? First spoken through the Lord, that's Yahweh, confirmed to us by those who heard. How will we escape if we neglect? In what way, how? So in God's earlier message, given by God himself along with his angels, it was a serious message then of how 
those who have received the message of God's own Son escape if they heard the message of Christ. Think about the word neglect. Think about what that word means. You know, when you hear the word neglect, what comes to your mind? I, and I want to be careful we're not reading our 21st century understanding of the word neglect into a 2,000-year-old document. What did the writer of Hebrews mean when he used the word amaleho? It means to ignore, to disregard, disrespect, scorn. Think of the peril and consequences that happen to those who ignore and disregard the gospel. Think about it. Because he's writing here to people that are rejecting the gospel. They don't want to hear it. Their ears are closed to it. They're happy with where they're at in life. Think of the peril and consequences that happen to those who disregard and neglect the message of the cross. Church, there's no escaping the judgment that will come upon them. If you die without Christ, you will burn in hell for all eternity. In Revelation 20, I think it is, it's eschatoroskatos. You're cast into outer darkness. There's no five years and then you get parole, ten years, there's no pardon, there's nothing. You break this, it's a forever deal. It is an eternity there. God's not going to say, well, you did ten years in outer darkness, so I'm going, to, I'm going to put you on probation now or parole. No, church. That's a lie. The word neglect is clear. I'm a lehel. Ignoring, disregarding, disrespecting, scorning it. This is why there's this urgent appeal that we pay much closer attention. We give, or as the King James says it so well, give more earnest heed to those things that we've heard after it was spoken through Yahweh. So the gospel message was spoken by Christ, confirmed by his apostles who heard Jesus in person. The Ten Commandments, they came with certain consequences for disobedience to it. So the greater salvation was announced by Christ himself comes with even more dire consequences to those who neglect it. Because he says it was, slide 28, confirmed by those who heard. And more legal imagery here. Confirmed. Validated. How was the message of the cross validated? He says, by those who heard. Now think with me, church. I'm almost done. If the word of God spoken by the Father and his angels was valid, as we just saw back in verse 2 of the scriptures, then salvation announced by Christ himself has been established and validated beyond any doubt, church. Do you guys remember Hebrews 1 and 1 and 2? God, slide 29, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, he spoke in the prophets in many portions, in many ways. Look at verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. So how do we close this out? Church, God the Father has spoken his final revelation to mankind through the person and work of Jesus the Christ. He's established it beyond any doubt, the reliability of the gospel message. And then how else did he do it? In slide uh, verse 4. Testifying with them both with signs, wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to, I know I hit you with a lot. So I'm going to stop there. I know I hit you with a lot. And you heard a lot this morning. 
you have no idea if today will be the last day you're alive. Every time I turn on the news and I see what's going on in Philadelphia, it crushes my spirit. 12, 13, 15-year-old kids blowing each other away with handguns. Those kids woke up just like you did this morning. Went about their day just like you. Had no idea that they were going to be ushered into eternity by somebody blowing them away. And it's frightening to see what's going on in our world. Lawlessness is just pervading. And it doesn't take a rocket science to see it. You know, Christ could come back at any time now. He could call the church home at any time. Rapture's right out of here. It is appointed once for a person to die, and then the judgment. Christ loves you. He went to the cross for you. Amen. He was beaten punched into the face by the Navy SEALs or the Praetorian Guard of that day, blindfolded, a crown of thorns put on his head and beaten down on his head with a rod. And if that wasn't enough, he was tied to a stone, chained to a stone, I should say, and a flagellum, which had lead balls and hooks on it, that when the guard threw it across his back and pulled, it sh shredded his flesh to where his spine and everything was shown. So think about it. He sweat drops of blood for you in Jesethamine. He bled when he was whipped. Bled when he was punched in the face. Bled when he was put on the cross. Blood was shed as a payment for your sin and my sin. The Father took that blood as payment for our sin. His death, his burial, his resurrection, the gospel, the Eugaleon. He forgives sin. If we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9. Listen, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And another present active verb there is to continually, continually cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is appointed once for a person to die. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. Close your eyes. This is serious business. You all know someday you're going to draw your last breath. It's not rocket science. We all know this. If you were to die today, have a heart attack, drop dead, hit by a car, shot, whatever it is. If you were to die today and you were ushered before him and he looked at you and he said right to your face, <clears throat> why should I let you into heaven? Ask yourself, what would your answer be? Because there's only one correct answer to that question. Not five or ten. No backroom deals. What are you going to say to him? The answer is simple. Because I believe that your son died on that cross. Amen. To pay for all the filth and garbage and sin in my life. Amen. To wash it away. Yes. He's still in the business of calling sinners to himself. He's still in the business of forgiving people. But church, time's running out. Time's running out. If you are here this morning, I'm going to ask you to surrender your life to Christ just as he has been freely offered to each of you in the gospel, and you listening around the world right now, confess your sin to him. Come clean with him. Listen, that's not for your, his benefit, that's for yours. He already knew the sin you were going to commit a billion years before he invented you in your mother's womb. The confession is for you to come clean with him. So you confess your sins to him. And you place your faith and trust completely in what he accomplished for you on that cross 2,000 years ago. 
Because the blood that ran through Christ's veins was the blood of God, church. The crimson blood that was spilled to pay your sin debt in full. If you trust and believe him and the Holy Spirit indwells you, you're going to now notice a hunger for his word. You're going to know more about who he is. You're going to want more of an intimate relationship with him. If that's not happening, you better check yourself and say, am I saved at all? Because somebody that's saved wants to be in the Word, wants that relationship. When I was dating my wife, I wanted to spend all my time with her. I wanted to get to know her. What does she like? What does she dislike? What brings her joy? What makes her happy? Because there was a connection, there's an intimacy. Just like with the Lord, there's a connection, an intimacy, and that is cemented through the person and work of God, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Because God's Word never returns void, the Holy Spirit will illuminate the Scriptures in your heart. And your life will change. And you won't be shacking up with somebody you're not married to anymore. Because you don't want to spit in God's face. You're not going to be using a crack and heroin and booze anymore. You're going to say, you know what? God has Christian believers in the world like in Celebrate Recovery where I can plug into and I can start to build God's word into my life so that I do not sin against thee. Amen. So if you're here this morning, I want to encourage you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. There's no, listen, there's nothing more precious that when the Lord speaks to you through his word, it gets exciting. It gets exciting when you're reading the word and God unpacks truth. We call it the hermeneutical circle. You can read a verse and the next time you read it and you get more out of it and more out of it and more out of it and more out of it. And it's a never-ending thing. So I want to encourage you. Listen, God's love will always be greater than your sin. And the God, the Holy Spirit, is more powerful than the heroin. He's more powerful than the crack, the coke, the oxycodone. He's more powerful than the fentanyl. He's more powerful than the booze. He's more powerful than all of that. Because Jesus loves you. And he wants you to have freedom. But that freedom is linked into a relationship with him. Not in the bottom of a bottle, church. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shake hands, meet and greet, and line up for the meal.